Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast may contain coarse language and descriptions of violence which may not be suitable to all audiences. Welcome to the Soldier On podcast. I'm Hugh Remington. In this series, we'll be exploring the stories that highlight, celebrate and connect our veteran community. In 2010, just 10 days before the end of his deployment in Afghanistan, Gary Wilson was on board a Black Hawk helicopter crossing over northern Kandahar. Due to extremely low visibility, when attempting to land, the Black Hawk crashed into the rugged Afghan terrain, claiming four lives and leaving 11 others severely wounded. At first, Gary was given a 4% chance of survival. He sustained multiple breaks, fractures and burns, as well as extensive brain injuries that saw him fall into a coma. Three months passed and Gary awoke to a different life in which he had to relearn everything from walking to talking, beginning a journey towards regaining his independence. Well, Gary beat those 4% odds in part due to the love and support of his partner, Renee. His recovery has been nothing short of remarkable, continually defying the odds stacked against him. Today, Gary Wilson is a Soldier On ambassador, a multi-Invictus Games competitor, personal trainer and Army veteran of 20 years. He and his wife, Renee Wilson, are our guests for today's episode. Well, I actually dropped out of high school to join the Army. In my last year of high school, I joined the Army Reserve, and it was like, this is better than going to school and studying, because I I hated school. I enlisted, then transferred to full-time service, then moved down to Sydney. So I was in Sydney whilst the rest of my class graduated year 12, so... 1999, I posted into 3RR to start my full-time service. Deployed to East Timor almost right away. Did my service in East Timor, then came back and did some more training to get ready to go overseas. And a friend of mine was moved, moved into my house, was living with us. Got up that morning and he goes, Gary, Gary. I'm like, what's going on? So I ran into his room. He goes, we're going to war. I was like, 
what's going on? And we watched the second second plane strike tower two. Like, okay, let's go to work. And we both just raced into work and got our kit ready to go to whatever's going to happen, wherever we're going to go, wherever in the world there's going to be action involved. So I was at three RA in Sydney and the whole through the barracks. And naturally as we came into the barracks, everyone's on the on their on their balconies, rushing back and forth, grabbing all their field equipment. Like we had no idea what was going on. We had no idea even at that stage. Who had, who had perpetrated this incident? So, like, either way, we're going to war. That was the whole, the general vibe was that everyone's just training, going to the gym, getting everything ready to go. So, wherever we're going, we're ready to go. Meeting Gary and his friends was my first exposure to meeting anyone in the military directly. I am probably as civilian as they come. So, it was very, very foreign to me. But what I loved about it, was how close they were and how connected they were to each other. And it was like that family outside the family. Gary was a jerk when I first met him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We we had an argument uh, at a bar in Canberra. I was out this night with people that I was working with and um, I was actually talking to Gary's friend, not Gary, and they asked where I was from because I'd only been in Canberra about three weeks at that stage. And I said I was from the Gold Coast and then that's when Gary piped up and told me everything he hated about the Gold Coast. (laughs) And I sort of, my always my first question is why? So I said why? And he had said because he had visible tattoos and at the time, so what was this, late 2000s, the Gold Coast was having trouble with bikies in nightclubs and one particular nightclub had banned anybody with visible tattoos. And so Gary's turned up trying to get into this club with his visible tattoos and they've told him no and, you know, he might have had half a skinful. So they took him around the corner and showed him why it was no. Uh, decided that he hated the Gold Coast and everyone from it. <laughs> So we had an argument. I told him where to go and I walked outside. And then he followed me about an hour later. The rest is history. We were supposed to be married in October 2010. So what was that, three years? But unfortunately, because of what happened to Gary, we couldn't. Uh, We got married the year later in 2011. The F3 Afghanistan was to be my first rotation with Special Operations Task Group. We both moved into Sydney and had de facto status recognised by defence. We moved into our married quarters, they call it. Renee was getting the house sorted whilst in my absence. Uh, and then whilst we're in Adelaide, one of the members of our team was killed in training. There was the comms blackout. Renee had no idea. So she moved into this house, this married quarter, to be together with me for a while. And then all of a sudden, well, someone's died on training in Adelaide. So... With the no comms back and forth, we had no idea what she had, no idea what had happened and, yeah. I knew that I couldn't get in touch with him. I had to wait for him to get in touch with me. But, yes, it had hit the news um, that someone had passed away in the training accident and he was it was his training and his boss called, sort of did the ring around and he rang me and I just said to him, tell me it's not him. Um, and he's like hang on, what have you heard? And I told him because I heard it on the news and, yeah, he confirmed that it wasn't Gary and he was just ringing to check in to see how I was. When I got the news that I was going, I was actually pending to go to Afghanistan after I passed all my assessments. 
I was excited to actually get, get overseas and do my job. Like that's what I've been training for years to do. Is a, that's the whole cliche is that you train for your job and you get to do your job actually. And then what I still didn't believe was going to occur because knowing the army and the army has a habit of changing its mind for the last minute. And so I wouldn't, wouldn't have believed I was actually going to Afghanistan until I was actually on the dirt in Afghanistan. So a lot of trepidation. Where, am, I still, am I still going? Am I still going to be there? So. I was excited for him. I didn't want him to be disappointed or upset. I hid how I was feeling uh, and showed him what he wanted to see. It didn't feel real at all until in preparation, I guess, on one Friday night, other guys from his troop came over, guys that had been before, one guy that was going with him, and they decided that they would sit there and watch some videos from Afghanistan. And in seeing the gun, or in hearing the guns, I just went, nah, this is too much for me. And I just went upstairs and left them. That was the first time I think it felt real. And then when he was over there, I never, I never let myself get too far down the path of his at war, his inner war zone, um, because I knew I wouldn't cope very well if I did. Essentially my job is to deal with the enemy communication to have to identify their intent, their location, they kind of stuff to work more for threat warning for my, my team. So I can say, hey guys, this is going to happen. Or watch out, this bad guy is maybe over this area. Like, so keep everyone yeah. safe. Basically, basically keep everyone safe. Fast forward, part of our rotation, we had, I had some information that the bad guys had seen of where, where our other call sign was, our sister platoon, and they were going to engage in about five minutes. And I'd been watching, I called them through, I said, guys, look, just so you know, Someone has eyes on you, they're going to shoot at you guys in about five minutes' time. And they hadn't moved, no one had actually moved for cover or anything. So I'm like, guys, five, four minutes have passed by. I said, guys, they're about to engage with you right now. And as my friend who was on the other, the other signal receiver, I called and spoke to him. He leaned forward to tell his boss, a bullet went behind his head. So that's why I said, that's why I re- reiterated the fact that these guys learn and know the battle space so you know exactly where everyone is and what's going on so you can protect them. My role is to go with each platoon, so with my platoon, I would go on every airborne mission or every driving mission and I'd be out there in the field like, so my little legs trying to keep up with the snipers was a bit of an effort because some of those guys, most of those guys are pretty, pretty tall, so they have long legs and they can walk quite easily. So, um, Tell them the story about how they wanted you to go up onto the feature with the medic and do army stuff and you're like, uh, what? <clears throat> so yeah, so that was for the Battle, battle of Shwali Cod. I knew it was going to be a, a very intense area of our area for operation that day. Where we land, we landed by the Black Hawks and moved on out. My platoon commander goes, "Okay, Gary and Medic, you guys go and clear the top of the hill, clear of all enemy enemy activity. Or so there's nothing up there, no one up there. So our job was to in pitch black, climb up through the dark, up through these rocks, and weapons at the ready, just make sure no one's there, no one's going to ambush us. So, <laughs> we're, so me and our medic, so he's not qualified commando either, so we're our own basic trade, and then we're doing our stuff with the commandos. And they go, okay, you two guys go work together and go clear the top of that hill. So yeah, so we got to the top and it was all clear, we're like, I've done my army stuff. <laughs> all I knew is when they were in the base or when they were on a job. That was it. So I knew he was on the base because he would be communicating with me in some way, shape or form, whether that was a phone call or an email. There's a lot you can't say because you don't know who's listening when they would make calls. 
but you know he would say some a whole bunch of things going on a trip with the boys going camping camping or whatever just to indicate approximately when and for how long I wouldn't hear from him to know that if I didn't hear from him for that period that was okay so you kind of had a bit of an understanding of when he was in danger and when he wasn't so our last mission for MRE Mason Mason Edwards was killed our last mission, so we've been through, we used his memory. We had like a picture of a, a mace, like an old medieval mace. In all their orders, so we say, that's Mason with us, that's how. We'd remember Mason, Mace was there as our protector for our rotation. We had Mason with us with like, in all, all of our orders. So we're like, okay, we've had no casualties this whole rotation. This has been a bloody good rotation. We've had no casualties. In the context in the of con- the broader army sustaining casualties left, right and centre for that short period of time as well. Yep. So within, within the Special yep. Operations Command, we had no casualties for our rotation. We had a few guys have been shrapnel injuries and stuff. So then that day I was running, my, my interpreter had returned back to Afghanistan after his leave because they said they were on different rotations to us and he was allowed to go back to his family to the US. He came back on to you know, Afghanistan into combat. So I had to run around all the day, get his, get his equipment, get his radios, get everything ready for him to get back outside the wire. So I was running past the phone and I was like, oh, I should call Renee. Oh, I'll call when I get back. It's going to be a quick mission. And we had a deal that I would call before, before every job and they last chance say, I love you in case something happens just so we could just have that little bit, little bit together just for a second. So I'll call when I get back. It's a quick mission. It was only meant to be three hours on the ground, get back, get done. Pack up and come home. Our Bushmaster takes us across to the flight line, which is the US side of the of Tarankite. We took off at about three in the morning. It was complete pitch black. You know how like the night vision gig, you see like the green and the black? They use the ambient light. There's no moonlight at all, so there's no no ambient light at all. So it's like trying to fly a black hawk with the eyes closed. And we're going at over 200 Ks an hour in pitch black. And they held the pause because he was their instruments. Our loadmaster, uh, he looked out and he, he could just see the ground. He's like, I shouldn't be able to just see the ground. So he called through on the radio to ask the pause, how low are you taking this thing in, boss? There's no response. The only response was the Black Hawk smashing into the ground at over 200 k's an hour. Yeah, so the Black Hawk crumbled or hold and tumbled and as it tumbled, it disintegrated and just like there's almost nothing left of the Black Hawk. Uh, most of the passengers were flying out along the way as it Within that short distance that took the stop, he said, the, the low master, he was still strapped in, the pilot and myself. I was still strapped in the whole way to the end. Two of the other black holes, they screened around to a full 180, come back and landed to immediately casualty evacuation. As all the teams are running forward, like picking up bits of people and our medic who's in the shared room with me, he gets up, he goes, these aren't your mates, these are patients. Like to try and take that emotion of these are your these are your best friends. Like these are people who've given your life in their hands for the last months. They found me trying to crawl out of the wreckage. There was on fire. Like all the ammunition was cooking off and exploding with the fire. That was like exploding with going off. Um, I was trying to crawl with one arm and one leg because the other the other side was just shattered. And then apparently they said that once they must I must have realised that I was safe and secure. I then collapsed. And then lapsed into my coma and started convulsing and all that fun stuff. As one, one of my other sick mates was carrying me, he's on the stretcher. My ankles flopped over. He goes, oh, shit, Gary's ankle's dislocated too. I'll fix that up. And I stood my ankle back up and it flopped back to the other side. 
Because huh, I'm not touching that. <laughs> I made him one who was an um, air traffic controller. As you put it on the top, he gives me a big cork in the thigh. I'm broken half my body. My heart is shattered, burns and cuts and breaks and stuff. He punches me. He goes, don't give up. Like as a way to encourage me to not give up. On top of all of the shit I have to get through, I had to get through a cork thigh. <laughs> as they were casavacking me, um, because I was so convulsing, the medic had to um, intubate me so it could actually help me breathe. Because of the convulsions, my jaw had clamped shut. So you couldn't, you couldn't get a hose in my throat because my, my jaw wouldn't open. I snapped one of my teeth in half. He forced the tube through the gap of my teeth. When I was on the chopper getting ready to lift off, I was still convulsing and still in very dire straits. I had no idea if I was going to survive or not. So he then lifted me off and had no idea if he was going to see me alive ever again. So yeah, then they rushed us back to Kandahar to stabilise the most severe injured, injured ones. They prepare us for the, a second Kazakh flight to Germany. There were four killed. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I was at work and I knew that they were out on a job and I was filthy because he <laughs> called me. And quite often I would find out through other spouses that they were out. So this was the second time that this had happened. The first time I was so angry with him that I didn't, I wouldn't answer. When he did get to a post where he could email me, I was like, no, I'm not answering you. Uh, I'm filthy because what if something had happened? And so when I did finally talk to him, I gave him a big talking to. He swore it was never going to happen again. And then it bloody happens again. So I knew they were out. I knew it was going to be a short one. So I was expecting an email or something from him by the end of the day, a phone call or an email to say back safe. So just I was packing up to leave work and just as I was packing up, I thought I'll just quickly check my emails first to see whether he's sent something through. So I checked my emails and I had a hotmail at the time and it was coming across with sort of news headlines at the same time. And there was a news headline that said, Mass Casualty Event in Afghanistan, Special Operations Task Group. And I just went into an immediate panic because even if it wasn't him, I knew, I knew that I would know the people that it was this time. I shut my computer down. I was like, I need, I need to get out. I need to, first of all, I need to check reception and see if anyone's here to talk to me. So I did. I went down and I checked and there was no one there. And I even asked at the desk and there was no one there. No one had come. 
And then I went back upstairs, grabbed my stuff and I was standing in the lift well and I rang mum and I said, I just, I've got this feeling. She said to me, but you haven't, have you heard anything? Has anyone called you? I said, no. She said, is anyone at your work? I said, no. And so they had told all the families that no news was good news. So if you didn't hear anything and the media heard it first, it did not involve your loved one. So you could calm down because at that time, all of the unit was focused on, you know, the people that they needed to support and that we would always find out everything before the media. That was the expectation. It gave a little bit of comfort, but I just couldn't shake this feeling. I sort of said to her, okay, well, can you watch the press conference? Cause I'll be on the train. I need to find out what's happened. So I had her stationed to watch the press conference. Something had crossed my mind. I was like, what if they're at home and they didn't come into work? And I was like, no, they know where I work. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. And then I started to just push that aside, got outside. I worked across opposite Channel 7 at Martin Place and saw the scrolling headline outside, same thing. I'm racing to the train as quickly as possible. And I just was like, no, it's just, this isn't right. Everyone's telling me to calm down, but I can't. And so then I rang Gary's friend who worked in intelligence. And to this day, I don't know if he still isn't telling me the truth uh, because he can go to jail if he tells me or if he actually didn't know. And he's pretty damn convincing. So um, he's either an excellent operator at what he does <laughs> or he actually knew nothing. So I rang him knowing that I was putting him in a position saying, surely if someone knew Gary was involved, you would. I don't need you to say anything. I don't want to get you into trouble, but I just need to know something. He reckons he knew nothing. I was like, sure, whatever. So that by this stage, I'm at the train station. I'm walking up the train platform and my phone rings and it says private number. And I was like, oh, thank God it's Gary. It's Gary calling to say, whatever you hear, it's not me. So I was ready to answer the phone. I answered the phone fully expecting it to be Gary and to hear his voice. And instead I hear this is major such and such from two commando, we're at your house. And I just froze. And I was just, it was just like, it sounds really cliche, but everything stopped. It was all slow motion. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't even hear him on the phone. It was just like everything was flashing before me and my worst fears had been realized. I just started yelling at him, tell me it's not him. And he said, we're at your house. We need to find you. Where are you? And he kept asking. And then, I don't know, something in me, maybe it was the lawyer or what, I don't know at the time, I was like, hang on, I'm in, I, I'm in the winning position here. And I said, I'm not telling you anything until you tell me whether it's him and what's happened. He tried again and I said, no, I'm not telling you where I am. I'm not going to let you get to me because I'm not going to sit on a train for an hour just to arrive for you to tell me that he's dead. So tell me now, is he dead? And he said, no. He said, but we need to talk to you. I told him where to meet me. And then while I was on the train, I was getting calls back from my mum and Gary's mum to tell me what had happened because the press conference had happened or was going to air. The hardest thing I had to do was to get Gary's mum to stop talking <laughs> and trying to convince me that it wasn't Gary 
to tell her that he was somehow involved but I didn't know yet know how and that they were at the house and I, that's all I could tell her and I would tell her more when I found out. It was just pretty much the whole time on the train I was I went through a whole different range of emotions. I know I was acting a bit like a crazy person. I know I was screaming at times. I know I had fallen down on the platform. But what probably breaks my heart the most now when I think back to that is a whole country knew Australia was at war. You could tell from the conversations I was having that something had happened, but not one person asked if I was okay. Not one person. And these were people, not everyone, but the same sort of people would catch the train every day. I look back on it now and I'm just like, you know, yeah, I know I was probably a little bit scary, but Jesus, not one person. Anyway, so I got off the train. I'd found out what had happened. I had convinced myself that chances were Gary was in the five that were not critically injured because I had it in my head that he just wouldn't get really badly injured or hurt or killed. It wasn't until the Gary's boss turned up and he gets out of the car and he's dressed in his dress uniform and I was like, oh, maybe this is just how they notify people when someone's been, you know, hurt. And then the next guy gets out of the car and I looked at him and I didn't recognise him, but then I saw his collar and I looked at him and I went, well, I'm Because immediately knowing they don't just bring a padre to do a wounded notification. And in fact, what it was, was a bereavement notification in waiting. They were waiting for the call to say he had passed away. And so that, that team was there with me ready to deliver that news. Their notification and support process, at least for me, I couldn't fault it. You know, they wouldn't leave me. They wouldn't let me stay by myself, despite how much I was trying to just say, just leave me alone, just go and I'll deal with this. They wouldn't. They made sure they, I had family in Sydney. They made me call them and bring them in. They wouldn't leave until they were there. They wouldn't leave until I'd packed a bag for the night and stayed with my family. They were there the next morning. They ferried me around Sydney so I could do what I had to do. I didn't even have a passport. Had to get an emergency passport. If it wasn't for the Special Operations Command, I'd probably still be waiting to get to Germany. Thank God for the Special Operations Command because they did what they needed to do and they, they always do what they need to do and they always do what's right. Once Gary sort of regained consciousness, we knew that he was doing really well in his rehab. He was coming well out of the coma. Everything was starting to, to work. He was trying really hard. We'd, learnt, we'd figured out quite early on that he was trapped in his body so the rehab focused on getting his body working again, getting his speech back. His frontal lobe had been injured, but we knew it was working again when he gave um, an intensive care doctor the finger, even though he was still half out of it. So when the neurologist first saw him, they did a brain scan. They sort of said, look, his frontal lobes are healing up quite well. So I'm pretty confident it'll be the same person returning to you. And at that point I said to him, he'll be fine. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, because he won't accept this. He won't accept being trapped. He won't accept a body that's not working. He will keep pushing until he is pretty much back to where he was. Crushed left foot, broken left knee, left hip, a couple of ribs on the left side of my chest. I stabbed my ulna. 
I just needed reconstruction as well. Boxes fractures in my knuckles and fingers. Third degree burns on my thumb, broken upper jaw, tooth and nose. Then the brain injury, which is the so bifrontal lobe bruising. Plus, I had a few sacs injury, which is like for kids with the shaken baby syndrome, like the brain just gets bounced around inside the skull and tears part of the axons. So, And not many people survive that. That's what kills a lot of car crash uh, victims. The neurologist did scans. They checked his voice box. There was no physical reason why he couldn't talk. He ended up with a condition called dysarthria, which is more related to the muscles and the coordination of the muscles, which was related to the brain injury. And that's what you can hear now when he talks. Also, so also affects my swallowing of saliva, so I have to pause and actually, actually have to cognitively focus on the swallowing, whereas like for you and everyone else, it's just natural. It's, you don't, don't even think about it, but I should process and how to go through and the clearing my throat. They'd create these picture boards and he'd communicate by pointing to different things with what he wanted to do. And then they moved that up from the picture board to basically a paper keyboard and he'd spell things out. And then I was like, why don't we just get the laptop? So then put the laptop in um, and he would type stuff. The speech, we didn't really start pushing that until he was starting to be able to swallow very thick liquids. They even thicken water, which is gross. So I dropped out of school to join the army at 17, full-time in the army at 19. So that was my whole career. My whole purpose was to be in the army. Then having such a life-threatening injury, then go through, learning to walk and talk all over again. I was like, my career's over. I love being active, want to do stuff and sit home because I couldn't drive that stage. And my, my whole thing, as soon as I was old enough, I could reach the pedals in the car. I was driving a car, like a typical little bogan. <laughs> so like, I wanted to get back behind the wheel of a car and all that kind of stuff. I had to go through my learners again, get my license again and... But having those things I used to love doing taken away from me, like even having to sell both of my motorbikes. For me, like that was my mindfulness. I'd go for a ride on the bike, I'd clear to the mind. To watch them begin taking around the trail of someone else is my <laughs> heartbreaking. So that, just having all that stuff that, that I saw was going wrong in my life. Like then I couldn't walk, couldn't run. So if we, if we have kids, I couldn't run after the kids. I had no, I'd be like that, that grumpy lady in the wall, the war movies. Grumpy veteran dad just sitting at home doing nothing, just hating everything. Like, yeah, that's the way I saw myself then. I got another guy who had been significantly injured in Afghanistan to come and visit him and to help him understand that he needed to accept help right now and that that was okay. Because at that stage I was back at work part-time because we couldn't afford it and I had to go back to work because I didn't know there was a such thing as a carer's payment. No one told me. We made sure that whenever I wasn't home that his mum was down with him so that he wasn't sort of by himself. When I started to kind of get concerned, I would talk to his occupational therapist. She basically told me what to do. She told me how to what things I could do and one of the early things we decided to do was get him back into his workplace one day a week for half a day, doing nothing other than just being around people. We were just living and breathing it. We kept going through everything. We were living and breathing rehab, you know, outpatient therapy, the accident, the other families. And I just, at one point, we just sort of said, we can't let this define us. We're more than just what happened. So I think that was a key decision because we chose not to be defined by what happened. It's part of us, it's part of who we are, it's part of our story, but we don't 
live in the trauma of it. Well, because I could barely walk, couldn't run. A good friend of mine goes, give rowing a go. So I, basically it's a, a woman who sprints her as hard as he can on the indoor rowers or the endurance is four minutes as hard as he can for four minutes and see how far he goes. Whoever gets the furthest distance is the winner. Um, so, yes, I gave rowing a go and then um, see the shop wooden discus so we um, tied to a chair and chuck as best we can. <laughs> so I gave those guys in 2016 for the Orlando Invictus Games because Renee was still pregnant with our second, mm-hmm. with Lockie. So then she had to stay behind because of Florida at that time or the, the Zika virus and that kind of stuff. So we, she couldn't come. The people in charge wouldn't allow me to change my carer from Renee to be my mum. So I had no one there with me. But there were some people who had their, their kids and stuff. I was like, this is a bit shit. Um, so they made sure Renee came back for the next year was the Toronto Games. So I did see the shop, wouldn't see the discus and rowing again. I could put in the wrong category, essentially the wrong category for the rowing. So I was in the guys with more able-bodied than I am. So but I managed to finish about half pack, which is kind of okay. But the funniest part was Gary was sitting down to do his row next to a guy who was quite literally three times his size. <laughs> just, I was like, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. So we had the, the field events for the Cedar Shop wooden discus and our, <laughs> you finish, finish my heat and they go, Gary, hang around. At the end, I was like, what have I done wrong? In the army, if someone goes, hang around, you screwed up. You're about to get your ass kicked. And they go, you won a medal. I was like, no. Nah. Piss off. I said, what have I done wrong? I said, go and get your medals. Like the head, the athletics coach, he runs over to Renee and looked all out the supporters in the scene. He goes, Gary Wilson just won a medal. <laughs> Even he was blown away. When I realized that my career was over, I was thinking, what can I do? Uh, first, I thought maybe I could be a psychologist. So I actually help people who go through the same traumas that I've built, similar traumas that I've gone through and help them in that way. Then my psych at the time was saying, how much math is involved? I hate maths. So I was like, okay, dip. So I was like, that one can go on the shelf again. So then I thought about maybe becoming an occupational therapist where I can help people learn to use their limbs again. Look, I've had to learn. First subject for occupational therapy was intro to stats. Maths again. (laughs) Um, So then I went went to TAFE and started doing some personal training stuff so I could get more involved in the physical side of the the training. This is pretty good. I'm, I'm good at this. I know the muscles. I know the exercises. I can coach people through exercise. And it was like the idea for the coach, for the name, was bear because my trade in the army, we call bears because we're from Kabbalah, Kabbalah bears. We moved into bear coaching so I can actually help people through get the mindset right to train and get help them get better and get moving again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soldier On podcast. Soldier On is a not-for-profit veteran support organization delivering a range of services to enable serving and ex-serving veterans and their families to thrive. If listening to today's podcast has brought up any personal concerns for yourself, a list of support services can be found in our show notes. The Soldier On podcast is produced by Smartfella Media, with special thanks to the team at Artsound FM, in Canberra. I'm Hugh Rimminton. Thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.